Welcome to episode two of A Jewish Life. I'm Rabbi Boris Dolan, Rabbi of Congregation Dorshe Emet in Montreal, Quebec. And today we're going to continue to hear the stories of our Jewish community, learning about our history and exploring our identity through the Jewish journeys of our diverse Jewish mosaic. Now, one of the important questions that I always make sure to ask everyone when they're telling their story is what values and beliefs have been the guiding forces that have been present throughout their lives? For some in our Jewish community, of course, faith and religion are that stable rock that helps us make our way through the joys and challenges of life. For others, it's their connection to the community, the culture, or the learning. Yet through all of this, there's always been the deep and enduring value of ethics, of tzedek, justice, and tikkun olam, commonly translated as healing the world, a vision for Jewish life that demands, that obligates us to care not only for those in our community, but also to pay attention to and help all those who are needed in the world. On our second episode, I'll share my interview with Shara Rosen, who shares her experience growing up in Montreal and the unique upbringing that led her to a life of activism and a deep connection with tikkun olam and social justice. Shara's exploration of her Jewish identity has expanded and changed over the years, from the strong role models that she found in her parents, from her strong secular yet very Jewish education as a child, to her volunteering in Senegal with American Jewish World Service and the daily activism that she lives today. Today, Shara runs Fondation Senegal Santé Mobile, which she founded after her AJWS trip, which has been sending primary care medications to rural health and birthing centers in Senegal since 2010. Shara and her supporters also launched the Pads for the Homeless campaign in Montreal in 2017, providing advocacy and menstrual supplies for homeless and poor women in the city. Through all of this, Shara has remained a proud Jew and an active member of the Jewish community. Shara shares an important message of how best to hold on to our Jewish identities in a very diverse world, how we can strengthen each other and strengthen our communities while also finding a way to deeply interact with and learn from other cultures and beliefs. Shara has spent her life searching for and working to create a Judaism that is filled with meaning and is relevant to our daily lives, a Judaism that is strong and dynamic, but is also open and inclusive. I hope that you are as inspired by her story as I am. So welcome, Shara, to our second episode of A Jewish Life. I'm so happy to have you here. I know that you have a fascinating story and a unique connection with Judaism and Jewish tradition. And uh, today we'd like to hear more of your story and what led you to your activism and your place in the Jewish community that you hold today. I wanted to know at the start here, if you could tell me a little bit about your upbringing. I know you were born and raised in Montreal Tell me about your your childhood, maybe even beyond that. What do you know about your ancestors before they moved to Montreal? Well, my parents came in 1920, each of them as children. My father came with his mom and a brother from a town called Tergunyamps in Moldova, Romania. And it's really interesting because my dad never would talk about Romania, and I understand why. Because my grandfather left them in 1911. Hmm. And so the mother and then the children were left alone in what my father called Finstere Romania, dark, terrible Romania, alone until 1920. Hmm. Now, there was no internet And during the war, there wasn't even mail. And the things he described, but my father was a true and true Yiddishist and a communist Hmm. 
who was very, very involved in um, social justice, in egalitarianism. And I guess we got, all of us, my sisters and I, kind of inherited that from him. Mm-hmm. My mom came much younger. Uh, oh, my dad came, he was 15. My mom came, she was only about eight or nine years old. And actually, neither of my parents had any education here except mm. for learning English and then absorbing French through just being in the community, being mm. in life here. But my mom came with her mother and father and all their siblings. And from what I understand, they were a fairly well-to-do family. My grandfather was the manager of a beet farm in a town called Mogulov, which, depending on how you look at it, is either Ukraine or Russia. But my mother always said she came from Russia. And um, they actually, it's amazing, they the family that is split up and they traveled overland for two years till they made it to a port and came to Canada by boat. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't easy, but my mom without her education had such incredible street smarts and was such a, not open, but a very hospitable person who I have to say taught me what it really was to be an ethical person Mm -hmm. because every holiday whenever she was involved in a lot of things like a choir the the arbitrary choir the um the workman's circle workman's circle choir she was involved in Hadassah and 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 the school PTA though that's didn't involve inviting people because their people were already had their families, but she would always invite somebody who either didn't have family. My sister and I used to laugh that she used to sort of in gathering <laughs> of, of of the of the of the vagrants, though mm-hmm. they weren't vagrants. But that's how my sister, my younger sister, and I um, thought of it. Now I have to just make one one small. Uh, we were really two families because I have an older sister who was 10 years older than I. And she went off to Israel when I was only seven or eight years old. So basically, my younger sister and I, who were only a year and a half apart, we were a second family. And we grew up very differently from my older sister because by the time I was around, my sister, younger sister and I were around, my dad wasn't really a communist anymore. Mm-hmm. But he was when my older sister was around. It was a whole different household. Then, okay, But still very this incredible, if I have to say, where in my background it made me the person that I am or allowed me to evolve as the person I am, it's first and foremost my parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad used to read us Yiddish stories on Sunday, and my mom, my mom didn't even let us go out for Halloween. Jewish kids don't go out for Halloween. <laughs> and so we were really brought up with a very strong community orientation. I knew always my whole life that I was Jewish and what it meant to be Jewish. Mm-hmm. And the the way I had to to um, comport myself, um, that we had to think of others, that we had to be involved in our community. This from the very beginning, and I have to go back also because there are two other elements that are involved with that, and that is 
Yiddish Aperitulum, mm. which is one of the P's of the JPPS that includes now um, Yiddish Folkschulen or Jewish People's School, and we were Jewish Parrot School. I can't begin to tell you what it meant to be and the sacrifice my parents made to send me to Parachulm. The, the people who taught there at the time were the intellectuals of the Jewish community. But more than that, they gave us such a, an essence of what it meant to be Jewish, of, of the culture. It wasn't a religious, it was highly secular. But what it meant, the Jewish culture, the Jewish tradition, our history, and also how we had to be involved as Jewish people. Mm-hmm. You know, we had to. We we had uh, a bazaar. All the kids had to work in it. We used to sell um, um, tickets, fundraising tickets. Had to go door to door as a young child. They made us do that. Nine years old, ten years old. It was hard, mm-hmm. but my mom. You see, we all got books of tickets. Mm-hmm. I think ten, so I think they were worth ten dollars. But my mom wouldn't let us just buy the book. Mm-hmm. She made us go door to door. It was hard. <laughs> I have to say, it was very hard. But you gather yourself. But it gives you an incredible sense of self confidence that you. My parents never put limits on us. My sister, well, I don't know my older sister, but my younger sister and I, we didn't have limits. Well, we had limits in that you couldn't just go nuts. But by, I didn't have a curfew. I was trusted that I was going to be home at a certain time. Mm-hmm. Um, we always learned that you can do, you're a girl, but you can do whatever you want. You, As long as it's honest and and. and honest, an honest living, that we had to be responsible for ourselves, but really a self-confidence that real is second to none, that gives you a, an idea that, that really you can do almost anything you want. But also, growing up in the 60s, the doors were wide open. Mm-hmm. They were wide open. We, we experienced things there wasn't all this HIV standing over you. There wasn't, you know, afraid. Children don't play in parks anymore. There, everybody was afraid. We walked everywhere, my sister and I, by ourselves. My mother, my mother showed us the way, and we did it. Mm-hmm. And she had confidence in us. Um, so, between Yiddish Aperitual and my parents, I really got a really strong feeling of Yiddishkeit. Uh-huh. And it seems like you, in some ways, your your family and the school taught you to be deeply proud of your Judaism, but it wasn't an insular Judaism, that it was welcoming and inclusive. And to be Jewish meant being proud of who you are, but also reaching out outside of the community. But that part came from somewhere else, it did. mostly okay. from Habonim, labor Zionist youth, um, where I was a member from the time I was nine years old till I was 19. Wow, that's a long time. A long time. My formative years, my incredible formative years were the instruction from Habonim of social justice, Mm -hmm. of democracy. Uh, We did, you know, we were taught, we used to go marching with the black community here. We did all kinds of things that which opened you. 
allowed you to be, that's right, not insular, yes. but open to the world, understanding apartheid, understanding what was happening in the world where there were people who were living not in the privileged life that we have here, mm -hmm. an incredible privileged life in Canada. Mm -hmm. not, you know, my family wasn't rich, but I never felt poor. I would, but I I've always felt And, that, and I didn't feel privileged. I just was proud, a proud Canadian, a proud Jew. And really, it, it was from Habonim that we really added into the, the, the Jewish ethic part to understand uh, what a social democracy is about, what it meant to share. Because at camp, when we went to camp, this is so funny, <laughs> we had nobody, you know, we didn't have a tuck shop where you went and bought chocolate bars and stuff like that. Uh -huh. We all, it's, it was 100% kibbutz theory. You give what you can, mm -hmm. and everybody gets according to their need. But for us, it was all the same. Mm -hmm. So for candies and stuff like that, we brought money. And the family, each family, put in as much as they they thought they could. But there was there was there were indications of what you should give, but you didn't have to give that much. And then at they went the camp went and bought chocolate bars and ice cream and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and everybody got the same. So as long as you got chocolate and ice cream, we got but well, we got, got it. everybody got yes. well. Not every day, I don't remember. But after supper, uh -huh. we would all get a treat. Mm -hmm. Okay, but everybody got exactly the same thing. I really have to tell this story. I was such a, and still am a serious, I was such a serious person. So my mom gave us money, and it was hot, and we were driving up to camp. And my younger sister, we stopped for ice cream. And my younger sister, Nomi, wanted to buy ice cream. Now, we didn't have extra money. We only had our coupa money. Mm -hmm. To this day, she has never forgiven me that I would not spend our coupa money on ice cream. <laughs> Very serious. The tragedy. <laughs> I know, but that's not the point. The point is that's how serious yeah. I took these things. I, I was always a very serious child, very, very, uh, a bit of a loner, but really a serious child mm -hmm. who who took, who 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 understood and took things um, seriously. So that's what how I came to be, a person who always believed that those of us that have privilege are incumbent. It's incumbent on us to help others and to share. Mm -hmm. And that's how I was brought up and that's how I've continued to live my life like that now. Um, I guess my first foray into like social justice or that kind of thing was of course with Habonim as a young person. Mm -hmm. And then after I got involved in Project Genesis, which is a community organization here in Montreal based in Cote d'Ange that helps new immigrants um, to acclimatize if they have problems or issues with landlords, with medical, with welfare, etc. So I've been on the board of directors for Project Genesis. Uh, I was a volunteer at Ober Shalom. Mm -hmm. um, and Well, and, you know, we'll get to some of your, what okay. you're doing now. Going back a little bit. So your, your upbringing, it doesn't sound like you would label what your, how your parents raised you or your schooling as religious. However... You know, that term, I think, especially in our community, can mean many things. So the values clearly that your parents gave you of 
deep and serious compassion for not just the Jewish community, but for everyone in the world, that sense of welcomeness. Uh, what, what would you call that? So is that, is that a core value of Yiddishkeit? Is that, are those religious values that, that just are, are, uh, are, are acted on in a different way? What would you call that, that source of your focus on social justice and your, your deep compassion that you have? I guess for my parents, for my mom, it was just what you did. Just what you did. Right. For my dad, who was learned in Torah, and 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 was actually much more the more, most more religious person of the family, mm -hmm. it would be the precepts that he learned through Torah and through study. Habonim, mm -hmm. we learned all these songs that we sang, and that which told gave us the 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 background or the the foundation to be able to see that there that that our jewish inherit inheritance involved these social these uh -huh. social um precepts yes well now what did you think then of gr growing up what did you think of religion did you go to synagogue was was God in your life? Did your parents talk about theology or religion? This was so. This was clearly something that was for that. That was on okay, the outside. We went typical, typical. Yes. I went with my grandma every once in a while, Shabbos, mm -hmm. but not a lot. But for, we for were, dinner or for no a, for, for to shul. Oh, I to mean shul. to synagogue okay. on, yes. on on fr on Saturdays mm -hmm. when she felt like it, and we slept along with her. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, of course, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. And I have to say, not being a religious person, whenever I worked anywhere, mm -hmm. well, high school, none of us went Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. They knew, even though it was a Protestant high school. Yes. Uh, but once I started working, I just already knew what the dates were. I would go to my, to my boss and I'd say, look, these are Jewish holiday. I'm not working. Mm -hmm. You want to pay me, pay me. Mm -hmm. You don't want, if not, then I'll take them as vacation days. But I can tell you now, I am not working these mm -hmm. days. So whether that's religious, I'm not 100% sure. Mm -hmm. But it was part of my being. Did we talk about God? No. Was the family especially religious? No, but very traditional. Every holiday was a holiday in the mm -hmm. household. But I have to tell you about my dad. This is a very fun, to me, it shows where my father was coming from. Mm -hmm. My mother passed away before him, and she didn't have, it was um, not a nice death, okay? And she had had her legs amputated. It's mm -hmm. a long story, doesn't matter. But my, you know, a little, about six months later, I don't remember, but a timeline after my mom had passed, I see my dad, he's sitting, and he's completely farklempt. Mm -hmm. And I go, pa, he goes, you know, in Mesim, your mother, she doesn't have legs. What's going to happen with her? So I qu thought quickly, and I said, pa, don't be ridiculous. At Mesim, you don't come back decrepit. You come back as a youth. No, oh, so this is referring to when when the dead are brought back. To back life, when the, the yeah when the, yes. when with the when the Messiah comes yes. and all the dead are, are are come back to life. Yes. So he had this on his mind oh, that yeah. my mom, because she didn't have legs, how would she come back when the Messiah came? And this is coming from someone who, who wasn't was religious. <laughs> wasn't even religious. It was a communist in his youth. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> but so, I just said to him, you know, I I answered that, and it kind of. 
it kind of eased his his worry a little bit. He says, Oi, he says to me in Yiddish, Oi, du hast recht. Oh, you're right. And that was it, you know? So. <laughs> so that was one of the deepest religious discussions you had. <laughs> Absolutely. You know yes. something? Yes. It was probably the deepest religious discussion that I ever had in my in my family in my family atmosphere. Well, obviously you experienced a, a family trauma and you, this was when this was when your father was reaching out for something beyond for something, what he had. For something, yes, be, right. And and actually my dad um, throughout most of his adult life did not was not Shomer Shabbos. Mm-hmm. But my mother had had open heart surgery and he made a vow that if she pulled through that's it. He was going to go back to the roots, and he became Shomer Shabbos. Did he really? Yeah, in in a sense, yes. I mean, let me put it this way. Yes, he became Shomer Shabbos. We didn't go shopping. But if, let's say, we were invited to a family something on a Saturday afternoon, his the way he rationalized it is that better to be with family than not drive. Mm-hmm. But he told me not to pick him up at the shul. I had to pick him up at, at home because he didn't want people to see him driving. Yes. But that's okay. You know, so there was a rush. It was, a, I guess, a kind of modern modern way of of coping with, with Shomer Shabbat that there are priorities. And mm-hmm. family is always a priority over sticking to your guns and I'm not going to drive. Mm-hmm. Well, so I, it doesn't so, sound like it's not quite a theology that he had, but it, it was a way of uh, of deeply connecting with the religious practices in a way that, thanking, that gave him a sense of connection and peace. And thanking God that my mom pulled through. Yes, yes. Because it was really a big operation. It sounds like it. Yeah, it's okay. She had a valve replacement. It's a whole... She, she had cardiac problems from the time she was 65. Mm-hmm. So, um, final, you know, so... Uh, I saw him, um, you know, he, they always, we always, I have a mezuzah on my door. They always had mezuzah. No, we didn't have it outside all the, the whole house mezuzahs, but our outside door always has a, had a mezuzah, and I have one too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just do it because that's what you do. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know if it's really that I feel I'm being protected by this mezuzah, but I'm Jewish, and Maybe I do feel I'm being protected. I've never rationalized why I do it, why I have one, mm-hmm. to tell you the truth. It's just something I've always, no matter where I've lived, whenever I lived, like as an independent, outside my family. Yes. And I left my family at 18. Did you really? Yeah, I went to school in Ottawa. So it wasn't like I got kicked out or I I left in, 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 in bad relations. I went to go to school. That was, you know, that was what I did. But uh, so... I think that there was a sense of religion, but maybe not of believing in God. Yes. Of a of a, a cultural religious, of a traditional, uh, like I call, think of myself as Masorti, which mm-hmm. means traditionalist. I'm not. I'm not not religious, but I'm not super religious either. Well, I think those religious practices and rituals, something as simple as putting up a mezuzah, one could say it's it's receiving blessings from God when you leave and enter your home. But you could also say this is just, this is a cultural artifact and a cultural 
uh, a piece of our living culture that that connects you with with your tradition, with your ancestors. When you look at that mezuzah, you remember your father and your mother and everyone who came before you. So I think you don't necessarily need to have God to to be a practicing religious Jew. I mean, I think that's one way to think about it. I, I think of myself as a practicing Jew. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so religious, but certainly a practicing Jew. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I light Hanukkah candles every year, uh, Shabbat candles. Um, and you're here for Torah study almost every week? And Torah study. Torah study because it's so fascinating to me. Uh-huh. The actual precepts, the way it was written, the the lessons we're supposed to learn, the history, the you know it's socioeconomic as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of Bible study as really delving deeper and deeper into how Judaism and the Jewish people evolved. Yes. That's how I think of it. Mm-hmm. It's like. You have to know Torah to understand the laws we're supposed to live under. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think it's an interesting way to describe your connection with Torah study, that you're looking at the evolution of Judaism. And the reality is you can, you can be someone who comes to a synagogue on a regular basis who studies the Torah, and you don't necessarily need, quote unquote, God. You don't need to have a supernatural being that... That is, uh, that is controlling all of that. But I think what you're examining, when we study Torah, and I think this is what you're hinting at and from the questions you raise when we're in Torah study, we're looking at the generations who came before us as they wrestled with tradition, as they wrestled with God, and as they asked questions and challenged each other. And in the same way that uh, the stories of our ancestors, even if some of them might be true, some of them might not be true, we hold on to them and we share them and we learn from them and we grow with them because that's that's what we've received. And I think for Torah study, I think what you're try, kind of saying is that we're, we've received this text, this tradition, and it's almost an obligation to, to hold on to it and wrestle with it. See, I think like, you know, Passover, Pesach, just having passed, when you think of the word Mitzrayim yes. and, and the psalm, Min HaMetzar, Karatiya. So it's the same thing. And it's not a narrow... So you have to think that what they're telling you is it's not a narrowness of place, mm. but it's a narrow, narrowness of thinking. Yes. And that how we, we were brought out of this narrowness for a reason, from Mitzrayim. We were brought out from Mitzrayim for a reason. That we're the chosen people is a bit difficult for me. But I think that maybe understanding that with being a Jew, you have responsibilities because the Torah is the seminal book or the seminal piece of, of, of liturgy mm-hmm. that is basic Judeo-Christian, not only Judeo-Christian, but Muslim as well. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a lesson there. There has to be a reason that it was that it that it happened, mm-hmm. and the Ten Commandments and all that kind of stuff. So I can't say that I'm re- really religious, but you know, sometimes when you think about you know that there's a God and looking over you, you know the whole the whole idea of destiny. Mm-hmm. 
how how you arrive at something, okay? Bashert, okay? Mm-hmm. It's a destiny. Destiny how? Who's controlling this destiny? So there's the saying that, you know, destiny opens a window or puts a crack in the door, but it's up to the individual to open it up, to That's follow beautiful. through. Yes. That's how I... so. I really, I don't know, I wrestle myself with the idea if there isn't some superpower or some, some, some superpower <laughs> or some power that really is guiding you in some way. Yes. Well, it sounds like even with your theology or lack of theology, you have a place for mystery and for finding... I, w- I would use the word holiness. You, even without a supernatural God, you leave room for holiness and mystery and, and, and some sort of understanding, as you say, of destiny. Is that, is that destiny. how you describe yeah, it? Yeah, of destiny and of, 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 of introspection Yes. and understanding that things happen to you for a reason and that you either go with it or you don't. Mm-hmm. And that... If you follow this destiny, it's going to lead you to incredible places because, mm-hmm. just because, yes. I, I, don't, I don't, whether it's holy, I don't think of myself as holy. I just think of myself as a person who understands that we all have a role in this world and really that as privileged individuals, you know, born in Canada, to... You know the family I was I was uh, born into, the upbringing that I had between Jewish school and Habonim. This is so special. It's so special, and it's incumbent on us to give back, to share. That's the way I think of myself and my life, and I've been done it since I was a child. Mm-hmm. So. Um, for me, it's just, you know, people say, oh, you know, you're so good, you do, you're so courageous, you're so this, you're so that. For me, <laughs> I, th- I, th- I take the, the compliments, gracefully, I hope, but I don't find of my, myself so extraordinary, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting, <laughs> the, the Yiddish term that's very well known a mensch, a mensch. A mensch. That's a how mensch I think of myself. A mensch just means a person. Exactly. You know, we, we, means more than a person. Well, it means more than a person. It means a person with ethics. Yes. But, you know, you, you, we say to people, uh, we don't say be extraordinary, be above average. No, you, say you say be a mensch. Be a mensch, which That's means right. what the core of who we are as people, it obligates us to not only give thanks for the blessings that we receive or whatever term you'd want to use, but to as you say, also give back. And that's that's at its core what we are meant to do just by being people and by being part of a community. So, you know, I guess this all led me and when I was in my um, 40s, I had kind of, my both my parents had passed away. Um, I My boyfriend and I of 10 years, it dissolved for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. And I found myself kind of at loose ends and working like 10, 12 hours a day because my career just started to kind of blossom. And I thought to myself, ooh, I gotta get off this treadmill, I gotta get off this treadmill. So I volunteered with American Jewish World Service was sent to Senegal in West Africa. And this was in 1997? 1997. Okay. And, it 
<laughs> See there, I just kind of, I can't say that I planned to have a charity that helped women there. Uh, but, you know, we were sitting around and an event happened to my ex-husband uh, in his family, which shocked me because a niece died for absolutely no reason. Really a st stupid. And I said, you know, we the, it's incumbent on us. This should not happen. Mm -hmm. We have to do something. And so a whole bunch of us got together. And that's how this foundation, Senegal Sante Mobile, developed. And I just, we just, we got a charity number. We started sending medications to, to um, community health centers there. And then we were looking for a way to make money. And <laughs> this came up that, you know, people, women throughout the world, but especially in developing countries, have a problem during menstruation because they can't always afford to have adequate protection. So we we found these reusable pads. We start and we just and just launched the project. <laughs> I can't believe we did this. Mm -hmm. You know, naivete. You just say, well, we're going to try this. And it's worked. And then now here in Montreal, I realize that it's a big problem for women and for homeless, especially poor and homeless women in Montreal too. Mm -hmm. And so we have this campaign to to find money and to give them this either pro well products to buy products or get donations of disposable um, pads and tampons. So yeah. it's like it just evolves. It's just you know you say okay well what do I do next, I guess, or the opportunities are there. And, and and But that's how my whole life was. I didn't plan a career. There were opportunities that came my way, and I just launched into them. Yes. And like I said, you know, the door cracks, you know, the, there's, the door kind of opens, but it's for you to walk through. You don't always, not everybody does. But yes. I think it's because of the self-confidence that my parents instilled in me that allows me to do that. Mm. You know, whether that's Jewish, I'm not sure. Whether that's religious, I'm not sure. But certainly, you know, when my mom saw us playing with non-Jews on the street, <laughs> she used to go on the balcony and yell at me in Yiddish, why am I playing with these people? Or she'd say, just come here mm -hmm. in Yiddish. And I'd answer her in English. And she'd say to me, if I wanted to speak to you in English, I would have. <laughs> and, and she says, you know, and she'd say, I'd say, don't worry, ma. And that was it. Because where we brought, where I spent most of my childhood was in a triplex in Lower Outremont, where there was a French-Canadian, this is incredible, a French-Canadian family at the lower level, us in the middle, and the top floor was a Salvation Army family. Oh, that's a diverse apartment building. Well, it was not. It was just a triplex. I see. Okay? Oh, I see. Yes. <laughs> yeah, triplex. So it's like, you know, Sundays we used to see them all with their, with their, with their uniforms and their yes. instruments. And they would go off to church or wherever they were going. And, you know, downstairs, I don't think they went to church, but I don't know. So it was like... It was like really, you know, it wasn't insular Jewish. Jewish. Yet across the street from us, uh, the, the Rabbi Kramer, who was at that time one of the top Lubavitcher Rebbe's, lived right across the street. Mm -hmm. And we used to go with his daughter to Mesibe Shabbos. Mesibe Shabbos is um, 
the Lubavitch kind of club for, for girls. It was only girls. But we had nothing to do. So we went with her to this you know, Lubavitch. So <laughs> where you counted not one, not two, <laughs> you know, these things. So it was really, um, we were always kind of in a in a mix of places, you know, we didn't live in a Cote St. Luke that was almost completely Jewish, even though my first seven years I only went to a Jewish school. Mm-hmm. You go into a Protestant high school, it's a bit of a shock. But I want to go back, like, to my parents. My parents loved Christmas carols. Mm-hmm. At Christmas time, we would watch the shows with Christmas carols. They liked the voices. They liked the choral. Okay, so it, it's not they didn't see Christmas carols as being kind of religious for them. It was being part of of the society that we lived in. Yeah, well, as we know, many of the best uh, contemporary Christmas songs were written by but, Jews who felt exactly. the very same way. It was a way of saying. Let's look at the universal values of Christmas, and that's that's or, what we'll Or my we'll mom about. used to take us down at that time. Eaton's mm-hmm. um, had oh my god, they had this Christmas kind of like fairyland with a with a with a um, train and everything. She took us every year. We didn't go sit on on, on Santa's lap, but we went. This was an event, or we went Ogilvy's. I don't know if they still do it. They have their Christmas window with all the puppets and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. We went to see this every year. It was, you know, it was just part of being in Montreal, being, oh, yeah, being a Canadian. It didn't mean we believed in Christmas. So I want to go back to uh, your, your experience in, in Senegal. Uh, oh, yes. So American Jewish World Service, I know this was one of the first programs that they had uh, where they sent Jew- Jews. 1997, to, to, they were just beginning. They were just beginning. So one of the one of the great things about American Jewish World Service, and they still hold similar programs, is that they, they not only there is one of their core values that social justice and work inside and outside of the Jewish community is a very important outlet for our Jewish beliefs and practices, but they take seriously what it means to be outsiders who go into another country. Because there, you can be, you can be in a, a group of Jews who go to Africa or Asia you know, you volunteer, you take, and in these, this day and age, you, you have your, you know, many young people do this. They take their photographs, they, they put it on Facebook, they come back, and then they get on with their lives. But AJWS, from the beginning, I think, said, the work we're doing is real. The work we're doing has to start at the roots, and we want you to come back and be inspired to continue to do the work once you leave. So clearly, this was a program that, for you, was profoundly inspirational. But I think it also says a lot about uh, how we can utilize social justice in our Judaism in a way that's that's useful and that is respectful of the people that we're helping. Another of the seminal events that led to this charity, except for what happened in, in my extended family, mm-hmm. was we would go, the organization I was seconded to did a lot of microfinance work and literacy training. Mm-hmm. And so we'd go at least once every few weeks. We'd go out into the countryside, into the villages. And the women, mostly it was women's groups, and they were really excited to meet me mm-hmm. and to exchange ideas. But they also showed me what a birthing room looked like there. Mm-hmm. I almost died. Mm-hmm. This con- this concrete hut that all it had in it was like a, a bed, a, um, not a bed, um, a bed, and 
and and a scale, and that was it. They open up this cupboard, and there's like nothing in it, not even an aspirin, not even a nothing. I wow. thought to myself, and they go, Madame, really, Madame, really, we really need help, Madame, we need help. And all I could say at that time is, I'll do my best. I, could, I didn't promise because I don't believe that's right. You don't promise something and then you don't come through. That's really not respectful. So I just said, I'll do my best. And these these ideas stayed with me the whole time. These women, most of them illiterate, intelligent, and 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 so uh, dedicated to their families and and lived life with such courage. I just you know, I, I I have to say this. Then I come back, and I'm at the gym, and I hear these people, women, complaining that she can't find low fat sour cream anywhere, or that it doesn't you know. So for me, the juxtaposition was so stark. So you get, you know, coming back to to our redundant and opulent lifestyle was very difficult. You 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 yes. you you know to 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 see what we have and what they have and how here not everybody but a lot of people are so like materialistic and caught up in these minutiae. So it it really reinforced in me also but yes, American Jewish World Service is extraordinary. And I have to say that when they when they when I got chosen, it was a very it was a lengthy process. That's one, but they said to me, "Are you going to go to Senegal as a Jew? We want you to go to Senegal as a Jew." Me and my whatever uppity, I go. I'm going as a person first and a Jew second. That's what I said to them. I said, I'm going as a person first and a Jew second. And I was faced while I was there. I was there over Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. Very hard what a time, time to be there. What a time to be in Galut, Galut, Galut. You're like all by yourself, basically. Yes. Um, and they kept, when I kept on telling them I'm not coming to work, they'd say, another Jewish holiday. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. Uh, but, you know, it. Um, I, I think that I did these holidays, showed them something too, that I came as a Jew and that I was observing my tradition and my religion in the face of like being in a Muslim country. And basically being alone, except there was the Israeli embassy that did do something for Sukkot, but that was doesn't matter. It's a long story. But there was some interaction with the people from the Israeli embassy for um, Yom Kippur and then Sukkot. So it's, um, but... (sighs) It was very it was very interesting. I learned a lot about myself. I learned about what it was for me to be Jewish because I have to say that the organization I was with, they were very, very social justice oriented and would ask me all kinds of questions about Palestine and, and the relationship between Israel and, and Palestinians. And I just kept my cool. And I just kept on telling them the situation is not black and not white. It's very gray, and it's very complex, and it's really hard to understand. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't take like the Israel side. I didn't take the Palestinian side, which I could have. I could have done either of those, but I didn't. I stayed middle of the road and tried to show them that it really, that I, yes, I'm a Jew, but I also understand the complexity of the situation, and I don't believe one side or the other side is right. Mm-hmm. Like I That's didn't, an important perspective to have. Yeah, very important, and important to show people who were really pro-Palestinian. Yes. The, you know, the young people that I interacted with were very, and very, very world conscious. I mean, I don't, I couldn't believe, it was just the beginning of the internet, 97, for them, and even for us here. Yes. And they were very, very well informed. I was like, mm-hmm. I was like a bit surprised, but I just wanted them to see that even as a Jew, that there was a way to look at it with equanimity, to look at it as 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 every side had their right and their wrong. Mm-hmm. So it it was an interesting time. I learned a lot about myself and my own beliefs and the person I was. I could not have taken Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur off. Mm-hmm. Nobody would have known the difference. Mm-hmm. Sukkot's a different story, but, you know, um, I went to work on Sukkot. But, but those three days... Um, Nobody, oh, nobody but me would have known if I would have just treat, treated it as a, as a regular day. Yes. Well, so it's interesting. You know, what do you think this says? Obviously, it says something about you, that for you to have this great realization in some ways about what it meant to be Jewish, you had to not only leave your comfortable home, but go to another country where people did not understand your Jewish identity or what it meant to be Jewish. They definitely didn't understand your politics or the holidays. So when we think about what it means for us as Jews, that is, can this deep learning about what it means to be Jewish, this exploration of Jewish identity, is this found in synagogues? Is this found in our Jewish communities? And what is the power of maybe expanding our, our circles so that we, not only so we can learn about others and help them, but so that we can truly understand who we are? I think... I think that's one of the, should be the goals of Dorshe Emet. We've had interchanges with other, pe- with other groups, Sikhs and Muslims, but I don't believe that we really had an interchange. What we did was had events where we saw each other. Mm-hmm. But I think that really, I would like to see Torah star study. Multi, uh, multi, um, uh, with dimensional or multicultural Torah study, where you look at a very simple thing, Bereshit, the beginning. Okay, you don't have to go like into deep things where you have Sikhs and Jews and Muslims and Christians sort of sitting together. And I think that's a true interchange. That's when you can delve into how will you feel. You can see how other people see the story. It's not really imposing one's belief on the other. It's a real discussion of what, what do these stories say to us? Mm-hmm you know, as people. And I think also when you, when we have to explain our understanding, our beliefs to people who are not part of our culture or faith, we go through a learning process that's very important. And I know when, when I've done interfaith work, I explain Judaism very differently to someone who's not Jewish. 
And it's in the end, it's not just that I'm teaching them, but I learn a lot about who I am as a Jew by by having to explain to someone else. So I think clearly so much of your life has been moving outside, strengthening your Jewish community, but also working and experiencing what the world outside of the Jewish community has to offer. And in some ways, the Jewish learning and the strengthening of your own Jewish identity has been so profoundly changed by that. I think a lot of parents believe that if they allow their children to mix with non-Jews, that they'll lose their Yiddishkeit. I think it depends on how they were brought up. If you were given a strong foundation to begin with, then you carry that foundation when you meet people of other religions. Mm-hmm. And I never felt that it, that, that it would rub off on me. Okay. Your the, roots were strong. My yes. roots were strong enough yes. to uphold me if I had Christian friends or Muslim friends. I don't know, I have any Sikh friends. But if I had to be able to just hold my own in discussions, because yeah, I want to tell you the place of Israel now, but some of my friends ask me questions, like when something happens, when there is, um, <clears throat> you know, when Palestinians are killed or Jews are killed or something happens in Israel that um, comes into into the media that you can't you can't you can't not see it, mm-hmm. and they ask me, you know, what's this about? How come this is happening? You have to be very solid in who you are. But nevertheless, their opinions has never rubbed off on me. Yes. You know, has not diluted who I am. You know, it's interesting. I think as you were explaining how you were raised, the values that your parents gave you, the values that your schooling gave you, I think you you were raised with a Judaism that you could believe. It was strong, but you could believe in it. It didn't have, it didn't have a lot of hypocrisy. You know, you're, no. they, they didn't say you have to believe in something even if it doesn't make sense. They didn't say do these rituals that right. whether or not you, you want to or believe right. in them. What they said is you want, we need you to understand Judaism is about being good, compassionate, and reaching beyond yourself in a sense. So you know something that I think I and many people in our community know and respect about you is you live your life which, with as little hypocrisy as possible. At least Correct. you try to. I try to. We, we all try to. Of course. I'm sure you, you try to. So we all make our that, little... <laughs> we, we make our mistakes, but I yeah. think that is something... Not mistakes. We fall into little crannies <laughs> that we shouldn't have. And, and such is life. I do think, though, as, you know, as we think about the future of Jewish community, not just social justice, but strengthening synagogues, Jewish community, we want to create a space a space where Jews can exist and and live in community with, I would say, as little hypocrisy as possible, where the words that they say they believe in, the actions that they take are ones that they can hold on to and feel passionate about. And above all, that Judaism is something that stays relevant and meaningful and that does not just good for the Jewish community, but for outside. And and clearly the life you've lived and the, the experiences you've had, I think, seem to symbolize a lot of those those ideas. I'm worried because I don't see a lot of people growing up the way I did. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the Judaism I see now in families is like kind of outward trappings, trappings of, you know, um, trappings. They're not. They're not. They're not true belief, mm-hmm. and it's worrisome to me because. I don't have any children, so I know I would have, 
I would have um, I would have brought my children up the way I was brought up, hundred yes. percent. There was no no, there was no um, doubt in my mind. Now mm-hmm. I don't have children, but I see that my sisters, only my younger sister, brought up her children. No, that's not true. My 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 nieces and nephew were brought up very much like me. Mm-hmm. like I was, and like we were as children, um, with the same really um, I- ideals and ethics, really, absolutely, absolutely. And I worry because I see, I don't understand where parents are these days. I don't know why they can't, you know, okay, so they can't read a Yiddish story to their child, but there's translations. You can sit down, and our writers, you know, all our, our literature is so profound and gives you such an idea of really what it means to be Jewish. Yes. That they they don't know this literature. They don't know. It doesn't have to be in Yiddish. As I said, they're translations, but it doesn't happen. Well, do you think do you think that there is an understanding and maybe a fear among not just parents but so many people in the Jewish community in Montreal and beyond that Judaism is about religion and and synagogue and faith and if that's something that is problematic because you know I don't believe in a supernatural god or services are boring or this liturgy just doesn't make sense that, that there there's a fear of stepping forward and saying well, but you know, I can be just as Jewish if I read Yiddish poets, and I can be just as Jewish if I schmooze for schmooze over conversations about intellectual or ideas, or the history of or Israel, or the history of Israel, or 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 just study culture, everything. And I, do you think that's a part of it that that too many people feel that Judaism is all about religion, and if it's not that, then it's harder to find an, an, a way to, to enter Jewish life. I don't know, because I can't speak for them, and I don't know what the schools are like now. But, you know, people choose to go. To, my parents chose to send us to Jewish school as a conviction, out of conviction, that yes. this is what a child, this is the education a, ch- a Jewish child has to have. Mm-hmm. Not because they don't like the regular, the Protestant public schools. Mm-hmm. Not be as an alternative to what there is. Mm-hmm. It was their choice. It was, this was, they thought is, and they made big sacrifices. Mm-hmm. You know, because we weren't a, a, a very wealthy family. Mm-hmm. But they made sacrifices to send us to these schools. You had to pay tuition, etc., um, so I don't know. I, d- I don't know what people choose, but I don't know what the schools are like because I don't have any experience with them. But there's something wrong somewhere, as far as I can see it. That there is, that maybe it's as you say, they think that to be Jewish you have to go to synagogue and believe in this God. To me, you may want to do that, but that's not the essence of being Jewish for me. So, I, of course, you don't have all the answers. No, I don't. <laughs> for sure but not. But I think just thinking of what you have done in your life, thinking of your upbringing, the inspirations that you've had from your parents, from your, your school, from your Habonim. work. From Habonim, from your youth group, from your social justice work. A word that comes up a lot in, in Jewish communal circles now is this idea of relevance. Jews, everyone today, Judaism is a choice. 
you do not have to be part of a Jewish community. You don't have to identify as a Jew. You never especially have to enter a synagogue if you don't want to, unless you're younger and your parents force you to. But if people can find a sense of connection and they say that Judaism is relevant, then they will find a way to be Jewish. So what, what is, in your, in your mind, what would it take for us to make Judaism relevant for as many people as possible? I think pride, instilling a, a sense of pride. And how do and, we do that? Yeah, how do we do that? 64,000 million whatever dollar question. Yes. I think, I don't know, I, I think it's just in how you act as a family, in, in what you, you know, Jewish holidays are Jewish holidays, um, understanding the history of your people, understanding the contribution that you can make as a Jew in the world, or just as a person in this world. It just happened to, you know, I was just lucky. But what does it take? Somebody to be brought up like I was, <laughs> basically. You know, that you have to have parents who are so proudly Jewish, who are so intensely Jewish and proud. I don't know if it's because my parents came from Europe and they certainly lived a very different life as as children than we did here. My father especially. Mm-hmm. My mom was too young. She was just, you know, really a young girl. But my dad especially, uh, you know, for example, he told me that his dad refused to send him to Cheder. Mm. Why? Because he couldn't stand how the guy, the the Malamed, was treating the children. He was mean, etc. So he sent him to a regular Romanian school. Uh-huh. Okay, that's where he went to school. But that didn't mean that he did that at home. They didn't learn that he didn't go to shul and he didn't learn the literature, etc. Which you don't get in the cheder anyway. But Nevertheless, he, it didn't mean that his life wasn't steeped in Judaism just because he went to a Romanian school. Mm-hmm. But so that that was his family life that did that 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 gave him that. I think that's where the essence is. I think that um, you know um, that you really have to instill. I'm not sure, but it just came to me by osmosis. Yes, it comes. You know, as a child, you don't you don't. You don't kind of make a conscious decision to read certain things or do certain things. Well, you do once you're like a teenager. But as a young mm-hmm. child, it's what your parents present to you. Yes. You know, my mother went and bought records, at the Yiddish records with all kinds of songs and stuff that we used to play, not CDs and all the records. But so that was something that when we put on records when when we you know that we didn't have television when I was really really young mm-hmm. she'd put on these records and we'd listen to these songs and we'd learn them yes yes so that's something that was done to make to, to inst- for us to learn certain things well you know I think it's interesting as as a congregational rabbi I think a lot about what the role of a synagogue is and and for so many people, especially you know your, the the generation that came after you, they don't they didn't have the parents to instill those values that Yiddishkeit the the, the religion Great. everything. So part of what I think synagogues and other Jewish communal institutions are doing, they're not acting as parents, but they they are providing a resource and a place where we where Jews who are part of our communities can 
understand and learn from each other and have that music playing in the background, have that learning going on so that they will have something and they'll have the toolkit to, to pass on to their, their children it. and their next generation. But again, the challenge is that I think people are hesitant about entering synagogues and other Jewish communal, you know, other Jewish communities because they feel, I just don't know enough. I don't know how I can pass anything on. And there's a fear. And I think what we, what we need to do, I, and I think, you know, your, your understanding of Judaism and your beliefs and practices as a Jew and your inclusivity and your compassion are part of how this will happen is we need to make Jewish communities safe, inclusive, compassionate places that accept people for who they are and inspire them not to be a certain kind of Jew, but inspire them to be menches, to be better people. People. And I think we are trying, but we, we can do much better as a Jewish community. I don't know. I really, I really, what you said about a toolbox, that's exactly right. I figured I was given the right toolbox. I didn't choose it. It came to me. And you didn't have all the answers. No, but for you, sure you not had, the you answers. You had the, the toolkit to, to explore exactly. and learn on your own. Exactly. And, and on yes. top of that, and a self-confidence that really the door the world was open to me that mm. i i could do whatever i wanted you know we were always encouraged to do whatever we wanted no not everything but you know <laughs> that to have the faith the, the courage to step outside of certain bounds um but on the same time there were there were very there were limits there were also limits like i once wanted to go to this civil rights some march of some sort i was 14 15 years old it was in park lafontaine now park lafontaine in those days is not the park lafontaine of today it was more wooded there were a lot of prostitutes and there was druggies and you know i'm talking about i guess the seven sixties, 70s wasn't the same as it is now my mother said absolutely not no jewish girl's gonna go to park lafontaine i said ma i'm not going to park lafontaine i'm going to to a march for civil rights you're not going and that was the end of yes. it okay uh-huh. she just for a person with absolutely no education none you know, she left Europe. She was like seven, eight years old. Came here. I think she went one year to school, and that was it. Mm-hmm. So, like, no formal education. I mean, but she somehow she had this. I guess my grandma instilled it in her, or I don't know, because we never discussed it. Unfortunately, these are things that once you decide as an adult you want to speak to your parents about, they're gone. Yes. So, or or. They're gone, basically. So you don't you don't tap into to them as people mm-hmm. a lot. You know, they're a mother and a father. They're not yes. people. Yes. I was lucky with my dad. It was different, but my mom passed away too early. That so I didn't have that chance. But with my father, I had that chance to explore certain things as a you know to relate to him as a person. But nevertheless, I don't know the answer, Rabbi Boris. To tell you the truth, it worries me. It worries me. I see the young Jewish people today. I don't think birthright's going to do it for them, though they try. Um, I have no idea. I think it's a big problem. So one final okay. question. Yeah. Uh, this may be a challenging question for you, Come but on, one final sorry. question. What? It's all been challenging. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean for you to be Jewish? If someone asked you, why are you Jewish? What would you say? 
First, I say I'm born to a Jewish family, but that's really not. I could have been born to a Jewish family and nobody know that I was Jewish, except your name, okay? Mm -hmm. And there are people who don't clue in that your name is Jewish. You know, there are people who just haven't had enough interaction. What makes me Jewish? I think a pride. A pride and the responsibility that we have to set an example. I know this is so elitist, but it's the way I feel. You have to set an example. There is so much negative feelings about Jews, and primarily because of what's happening in Israel. So I think, as you said, we have to have pride and we have to we have a responsibility as Jews, and clearly from what you've said, we have a responsibility to not only take care of ourselves, uh, our right. Jewish community, but take care of the greater world. And that responsibility, I think, that responsibility leads to pride. That The pride leads to responsibility, and the responsibility leads to pride. Yes, because they think, oh, Voulez, if you only take care of yourselves. It's not true. And I think that, you know, that... Israel should announce more about when they send they send hospitals to like Haiti or Sudan or whatever they do. These, which happens all the time. Which happens all the time, and most of the world doesn't even know about it. Mm-hmm. You know, or we as Jews, you know, or what you know, our Syrian our, our our program for Syrian refugees, and way back when when families brought su- supported Vietnamese. Um, refugees back, I don't know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, not too good in history. But so these are things that we have to really, and then again, there's the other side of the coin. Oh, we're, we're, we're fluffing our feathers again. We're showing everybody how good we are. So it's a very fine line between taking care of ourselves and showing the world that we really care about everybody else too. Mm-hmm. You know, the Jews in Montreal are what one of the few, the one of the first communities. I don't know about other cities that had a Hebrew free loan society that had a kind of Medicare. My parents used to used to pay in to to a a fund so that if you had Chasvachalila to be to be um, hospitalized. You, you had there was like an insurance mm-hmm. because in those days there was no Medicare and mm-hmm. you had to pay the hospital. So if you were really if really something happened to you, you had to have some way to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And other other of the and Jayas and all the kinds of community organizations that we have. Not all the communities here, not all the Greeks, the Portuguese, the Italians, the Chinese, the Chinese more, but not everybody had this. Mm-hmm. And now they took the example. Now, where did we get this? Well, we got this, I guess, because we've always had to take care of ourselves. Two thousand years of of being strangers in all kinds of lands. Yes. So, it's really a fine line, really, between, as I can see it, being seen as insular, and we take care of ourselves, and also showing that we can be part of a greater world. Yeah, as I like to think about it, you know, we're told that we're, we should be a light to the nations, but w- there's enough light in this world that we can have enough light for us and to bring to others. And, and that light should be something that is, uh, 
that is not because we just want to show off, but because who we are as Jews, who we are as individuals and as a community, we are, we are people that, that help and that we do our part to fix the brokenness in the world, plain and simple. Exactly. And to be, you know, the precepts of Vareha Kamocha, you know, which is Jesus' golden rule, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so, yeah, I think uh, what makes me a Jew, I think being able to walk out of my community strong, proud, and to um, show others, um, Jews and non-Jews alike, how to be a mensch. What a beautiful way to live. Well, thank you, Shara, for sharing your story. It's truly inspirational, and I, I hope other people will be able to understand what it means to be Jewish and what it means to be a mensch from hearing your story. Well, thank you very much for this opportunity. I kind of am humbled because, like I said, I just figure what I do is normal for people to do. But I guess it isn't. Not everybody walks walks the lo- that line. But thank you, and I really appreciate this. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed this episode of A Jewish Life. There are so many stories out there, so many different ways of connecting with Jewish life and tradition. These stories come from everywhere. They come from you. If you are interested in sharing your story on our podcast, or if you have comments on the show, you can always contact me at boris at ajewishlife.org, or find me on our website at jewishlife.org. Your story, your journey is part of our story, and I look forward to getting to know you on A Jewish Life. Oh, 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 oh,